Greetings from Little Rock Air Force Base, a 2020 Great American Defense Community. I'm Colonel John Shetty, Commander of the 19th Airless Wing. And I'm Mike Watson, President of Little Rock Air Force Base Community Council. Thanks for tuning in. This is ADC Live. Good afternoon and welcome to ADC Live. I'm Tim Ford, ADC CEO, and joining Matt live together here in Washington, D.C., where summer has actually arrived a bit early. I think Thank it's almost God. 80 degrees outside already. So. <laughs> well, welcome. Hey, a big shout out, as always, to the folks in Little Rock. You know, that's the last place I was traveling in February. I uh, got back here, and of course, then the world went to hell. But yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's actually turning out to be a pretty busy news day for us, and we're fortunate to be here live on the air today to share some timely information about this year's DSIP program, which actually got released last night. We've asked Sal Najamian to join us in a bit for a rundown of what we can expect from this year's DSIP program. We also got lots of other great stuff today, including an interview with Senator John Tester, chair of the Senate Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. We're also excited to announce two new things going on at AAC. One, a new resource guide for communities looking to support climate resilience and a great new recognition program we're starting with the help of Navy Federal Credit Union. And we've got one of our favorite guests, Todd Harrison from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And we're gonna do a rundown today of uh, what's coming out of DC. But before we jump into all that, let's check out today's headlines. Thanks, Matt. It's Wednesday, May 19th, and here are your headlines powered by On Base. Last week, Christine Warmuth, President Joe Biden's nominee for Army Secretary, sat, for, sat with the Senate Armed Services Committee for what ended up being a relatively smooth hearing. Lots of good information from the discussion, but the headline was her pledge to resist efforts to cut the service's funding and end strength in favor of modernizing the Navy or the Air Force. That's right. Warmuth pledged to be a very strong advocate for the Army and said she would be quite skeptical of any proposals that include major cuts to its force structure, which she said could harm readiness. And in exchange with Senator Cotton from Arkansas, he raised a possible scenario in the near future in which urgent Air Force and Navy priorities could be paid for by taking money from the Army and suggested that in-strength reduction might need to occur. In response, Warmuth said, I don't think anyone would be well served by looking at the Army as just a bill payer. It'll be interesting to see when Warmuth gets in her seat and how she shapes the FY23 budget uh, that's already underway. From D.C., we cross the country to San Diego, where an interesting public-private partnership is taking shape in San Diego with the Navy. The Navy has determined it would like to work with private developers to replace facilities and open land for on at Naval Base Point Loma Old Town Complex. With its prime location along I-5, which is just north of the airport, the Navy sees an opportunity to consolidate its 6,000 employee footprint in new buildings and also make room for thousands of houses, office space for large companies, hotels, community shops, and a major transit center. Details on the project were released as part of a draft environmental impact statement last week. The Navy has been working with the San Diego Association of Governments throughout this process. Last year, the party said that they would work toward a land transfer 
although a transaction remains out of reach until Sandag can identify funding. Getting rid of excess property like this might have something that could happen, uh, could have happened via BRAC, but absent a BRAC, this might be a new reality. Another news, a story out of Clarksville, Tennessee, home to Fort Campbell, uh, caught my eye this week. It's about the housing crunch we are seeing all over the country, but also included in defense communities. In the Clarksville area, 10 years ago, a busy market would mean that you'd almost have 800 homes in the market. But as of this past Friday, only 116 homes were available. I think many of you can probably sympathize with that. Uh, but as we look towards the future, uh, I think you know building new homes has gotta be a priority. Even if it's a hot market uh, and people are just renting, and you think about the churn that normal military goes through, their needs for housing uh, can become quite desperate, even if they're renting. This tight demand is flowing down to the rental markets as well. well. One of the reasons the Tennessee story caught our eye is the fact that this isn't just happening in Tennessee. It's really happening around the country. Um, in fact, a recent analysis of Realtor.com data by Insurify identified the 20 markets in the country that will have well, that will be the hottest in this year. And more than a quarter of those happen to be defense communities. So even if you aren't on this list, you are likely to be seeing a, ho a hot a hot housing market in your community right now. What does the rest of the year look like? And what does this mean for defense communities and our military families? Well, a few points. First, housing will become less affordable as demand is expected to push the average cost of buying a house up nearly 6% this year. In some areas, that could be more, more than double digits. New housing is coming back, but it's going to be slow. The, the ha pandemic ha hammered housing starts. And while things are starting to restart, it will take a year for the construction market to catch up. And it will continue to be a seller's market despite low interest rates. Even qualified buyers are not going to be able to compete necessarily in this market. So we expect housing to be a big headache for military families this year. Availability and affordability will be big challenges for everyone. And while it's hard to change the parameters of the market right now, communities should look at ways to make sure housing and planning for the future of their housing is part of their installation community planning process. Deciding on whether to get vaccinated or not varies widely between different demographic groups, according to a new military study released last week, with race, ethnicity, and age all playing a major factor. Between the four military branches, the Army had the lowest rate of vaccination. Marines were 52% more likely to get vaccinated than soldiers, and sailors and airmen were respectively 45% and 15% more likely. Perhaps even more troubling, black service members were least likely to choose to get vaccinated, as well as females and those within the lower enlisted ranks. The study suggests that external forces to the military, such as interpersonal and societal factors, also contributed toward vaccine hesitancy. And members of the military and their leadership and vaccine planners need to be aware of these disparities as they continue their education efforts. In related news, the Defense Department no longer requires masks at DOD facilities for fully vaccinated personnel. The guidance applies to everyone who is at least two weeks past receiving their final dose and covers both indoor and outdoor activities, according to a May 13th memo from Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks. 
the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Military Construction, Veterans Affairs, and Related Agencies held a hearing yesterday on Air Force quality of life. Air Force leaders shared that the administration's budget will recommend investments in infrastructure upgrades at Air Force facilities and housing. Some of the most interesting discussion happened during the Q&A. Some lawmakers question whether the Air Force recognizes how bad its infrastructure is. Chairman uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz said about a third of the services facilities are rated as poor or failing. One of the really interesting parts of that hearing was the ranking Republican, John Carter of Texas, asked if you've got a rundown place, why aren't you asking to fix it? And if those bases are of no importance to the Air Force, then maybe we wanna have a BRAC and save some money. So we don't usually have people bringing up the BRAC word in hearings, but- Just drop up, that. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. And a representative of Space Force told Bob Makers, the new branch will soon be releasing its space strategy, which will have a guardian first focus with a recognition that quality of life for service members and their families is important to readiness. That's our look at the headlines, but we're going to continue this discussion because it's a busy time here in D.C. and it's going to get busier over the summer. To give us a rundown of what's happening in Congress and in DOD, we're happy to be joined by one of our favorite experts, Todd Harrison from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome, Todd. I'm glad you're able to join us today. Yeah, no, glad I could do it. Glad to be here. Great. Well, let's start with one of this week's biggest headlines, and, and that's that the NDA being pushed back to September. What do you think that ultimately means for this must-pass bill? Yeah, no, um, it's because of the budget request being so late. And, you know, Chairman Smith of the House Armed Services Committee, he warned about this. Uh, he warned the administration that if they continued to be late and if they went past mid-May in releasing the budget request, that he would have no choice uh, to push back consideration of the NDAA. So uh, this is uh, extraordinarily unusual, uh, not only to have a budget request this late, uh, you know, being released on May 27th, which is what they're telling us now, that'll be the latest any budget request has ever been submitted to Congress. Um, and, you know, having the the markup occur for the NDAA in the House uh, in September after the August recess, that's also highly unusual. Uh, so it, it's kind of, you know, throwing uh, sand in the gears, if you will, of the normal congressional budget cycle. Uh, and ultimately, it's making it much more likely not only that we start the year on a continuing resolution, which happens more often <laughs> than not anyway, what it does is it makes it more likely that we end up on a long-term continuing resolution, maybe three, four, five months into the year. And when, when would you actually think that we'll see an NDAA this year? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't expect to see one uh, until, you know, an actual final version come out of conference committee uh, and get voted on on the floor in both chambers. I wouldn't expect to see that any earlier than December at this point. It wouldn't surprise me if it pushed into January. Great. Todd, talk us through how the military services are locked in a somewhat public tug of war for funding. What are you hearing on all this? Yeah, so, you know, it's uh, the, the knives are coming out, right? So it's a, a flat budget environment right now. We're looking at, you know, essentially a flat budget uh, for FY22 and beyond. Of course, you know, the 
the future years are more uncertain. But what that means is that you've got competing pressures within the defense budget. Uh, you know, you look at personnel costs, uh, they tend to grow faster than inflation. Our operation and maintenance costs uh, tend to grow faster than inflation. We've got a lot of aging equipment in the inventory that's more expensive every year to maintain. And when we buy new equipment to replace the old equipment, the new equipment also also costs you know more to operate and maintain. So you know just to maintain the same size force we have today, uh, you need some level of real growth in the budget over time. Not to mention trying to modernize the force. But in a flat budget, you know that's not going to happen. And so someone's going to have to be cut. Someone's going to have to make sacrifices. And all the services are now pointing the fingers at each other and saying, hey, I shouldn't be the bill payer. You should be the bill payer. You know, if the Navy wants a larger fleet, the Navy needs to take it out of its own hide. You know, that's what the Army is saying. Uh, Both the Air Force uh, and the Navy are pointing at the Army and saying, hey, you know, now that we're out of Afghanistan and we're, you know, shifting our strategic focus to China and Russia, the Army doesn't play as big of a role. We can afford to take some cuts in the Army. Uh, then you also see it playing out at the uh, the programmatic level of detail where, you know, the army is saying, hey, we are relevant in a fight against China and Russia because we are building these long range uh, missile forces, long range fires. Uh, and then, you know, the Air Force is coming back and saying, whoa, you know, long range fires. That's what we do. That's what strategic bombers are for. You know, there's a roles and missions uh, overlap here. Uh, and so they're fighting each other on all levels. So so do you think, Todd, that we, you know, this risk of the army um, considering end strength cuts, is, is that realistic or is it is, is it even too early to be going down that route? I'll tell you that, you know, my perspective, just looking at the numbers, um, that if we're going to be in a flat budget environment for the next few years, I think it's inevitable that each of the services are going to have to cut back and forth structure. And I think that the Army is going to be the biggest target. Uh, for cuts and you know, particularly things like infantry BCTs and striker BCTs. Uh, I think we could see those force levels come down, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit in the next few years, uh, just as a, a kind of a, a, a fact of life. If the budget's coming down, the money's got to come from somewhere. And ultimately, you know, the army spends more of its budget uh, on personnel related costs than any of the other services. Uh, and so if you if you're going to make reductions in the army, it's ultimately is going to need to come from cutting in strength, which translates into force structure. Okay. Well, you know, when you after you start talking about cutting end strength, the next thing you start talking about is facilities. I, I think you you heard right before we got on with you, we were talking about the hearing yesterday where Representative Carter dropped the brack bomb a bit in his questioning of Air Force leaders. I know we realized he was being glib, but do you, do you think that there there could be a renewed interest on looking at cost cutting measures like BRAC because of all the concerns about the budget? You know, it's been a long-term interest area of DOD really since the last BRAC finished. DOD started looking at it and saying, hey, that BRAC didn't clean up a lot of the excess uh, infrastructure that we have, particularly in the Air Force and the Army. This is not so much a Navy issue, Um, but they've done studies since then, and they have, the military has proposed additional rounds of BRAC multiple times. 
uh, since the 2005 BRAC ended, every single time they've been rejected uh, by Congress. Um, you know, the Trump administration did not try to propose uh, a BRAC, uh, but I think that the new Biden administration, if they don't do it this year, because, you know, they haven't had that much time to work with the FY22 request, uh, they may actually come back uh, next year and propose uh, another round of base closures. And I mean, this would be much more targeted than we saw uh, in 2005. 2005 was really a lot of realignment, not a lot of closure. Uh, it was very expensive. Arguably, it was a lot of movements that just were long overdue and upgrades of facilities that were long overdue, and they just wrapped it into a BRAC. I think, you know, what would be different this time is they would be looking for real savings, near term savings from closing Air Force and Army uh, facilities in particular. But the big caution here is if you need to save money now or in the next two or three years, a BRAC doesn't do it for you. A BRAC gives you long term savings uh, if you do it right. Uh, but up front, it's going to cost you more. Uh, and so that, you know, that's one of the reasons that I think Congress is not going to look kindly uh, on a BRAC proposal in the next few years, because it doesn't get us out of the near term problem that we have. Well, you know, regardless, it's going to be a really interesting time for defense communities in these next few years with a lot of changes happening. Todd, thank you for joining us. You always make us smarter when, when we have you and we really appreciate your support. So thanks for being here today. All right. Thank you. ADC Live continues its coverage of technologies that will make up the base of the future. From robot dogs to housing and microgrids, uh, today we have another technology to look at, the future of biodefense. We sat down with James Lee, founder and director of Synexus, a company that is taking an innovative approach to combating even the smallest of threats. Let's take a look. James, you've really, your, your company has really developed something unique. And from what I've heard and the research I've read, it seems like it's going to be a big component as we look at the base and military facility of the future. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your company, how it got started, you know, and really how you were able to, to kickstart this uh, really neat technology. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, I started out, I'm a West Point graduate, and went into the Army Chemical Corps, which is the branch of the Army that deals with nuclear, biological, and chemical defense. In the latter part of the Cold War, I was assigned to the 9th Infantry Division in the Army's high-technology testbed and served in several command and staff assignments while I was there. Uh, after about 10 years, the academy asked me if I would be willing to return to teach there. So I went to the University of Virginia, where I got my master's degree in chemical engineering. Then I went back to West Point a second time and, uh, and taught there for several years. Uh, ultimately, I uh, directed the largest academic course at the academy. After military service, I went into the private sector and I worked as an anti-terrorism consultant for Fortune 500 companies. Uh, when a major software company received an anthrax letter from Malaysia, I helped them recover from that. And then within a couple of years, I was uh, consulting full time for a uh, for the world's largest insurance company in New York City. And we were placing the first sensor networks in downtown uh, Manhattan at the time, uh, where we could detect chemical and radiological in real time. But we, the only technology available to detect uh, bio uh, could not distinguish between pollen and a pathogen, so it was useless. And I looked at that as a major capability void. So what I decided to do was uh, try to develop something that would uh, effectively be an immune system for a building. Um, and 
I looked at ozone and, and that was dangerous. So we, we got as far away from it as we could. And then I figured out that we could make dry hydrogen peroxide. Um, my goal, though, in, in developing this was to create something that would uh, provide continuity of uh, business, continuity of government, uh, workforce protection, and facility resilience. Um, and we wanted it to be able to work 24-7, 365 on a prophylactic basis and begin mitigating a bio-risk from the moment of its introduction, even if its introduction wasn't recognized, begin working right away. And I was looking uh, not just at uh, you know bioterrorism events, but also outbreak, epidemic, and pandemic. And if you can deal with all of those things, and you can deal with the normal stuff that we contend with daily, uh, the mold, the odors, and everything else in the facility. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, as a former Army Seaburn NCO myself, I can certainly appreciate a lot of that. Um, but, you know, I mean, as, as COVID and, and, you know, even if you look at the housing before COVID, hit the mold uh, issues that many of the services were facing in the housing. Right. I mean, this sounds pretty cutting edge. Can it can it really protect uh, folks from COVID and other uh, chemicals like that? We uh, we don't claim to protect people from COVID. What we do claim to do is kill um, you know the SARS-CoV-2 virus in the air, um, and you know we you know that, that's where technology works. Uh, we 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 take a little bit of humidity from the air, uh, we break it into pieces, we separate the pieces of the humidity molecules the way you separate an egg, and then we one of those pieces is a half of the hydrogen peroxide molecule. So we pop them together. You get a dry hydrogen peroxide molecule, and it's a true gas molecule at that point, like oxygen or nitrogen, safe for us to breathe. Um, and it goes out into the air, it becomes part of the air, and literally is occupying every cubic centimeter of air in the room at the same time, and we generate it continuously. So it's being consumed, and we're, we're replacing it all the time. So it's killing viruses, bacteria, and fungi like mold, and viruses like SARS-CoV-2 in the air all the time. And on top of that, it's breaking down odors to get rid of those. And insects don't like it. They don't have the same enzymes in the lungs that we do. So they get out of dodge, basically. Can I put this in my house? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, so, you know, more and more people are, uh, we're not selling broadly in the residential market yet. Um, but, uh, you know, more and more people are. Uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, the, the government community and, uh, you know, basically we know that housing, uh, you know, government housing and mold is an issue. And, uh, you know, we're ready to uh, fulfill that need specifically. Uh, mold specifically, uh, we're very, very, very effective against that. Um, we kill the mold, um, you know, basically, basically put it in, the, the technology is working all the time. It kills the mold, and then it uh, continues to prevent, you know, to work and prevent the mold from coming back as long as the technology is still in place. And so I imagine, though, it, it, the scale of this thing can be up and down. I mean, are we talking motor pools and, and whole installations? Absolutely. And We're, I mean, items? we are in all sorts of different facilities now. We're in offices for Fortune 500s. Uh, we're in major sporting facilities. Uh, both the championship teams in the Major League Baseball and uh, the NFL use our technology. Um, you know, we're in schools, healthcare facilities, hospitals, uh, universities in their dorm rooms. And, you know, they, they bought our technology initially uh, to control mold. And, uh, and then and then as, as SARS-CoV-2 did um, to, you know, to help keep the students safer. And, um, you know, long story short, uh, I mean, literally, I mean, you name it, uh, you know, we're 
you know, we're in uh, factories, we're in restaurants, we're in theaters, we're in churches, uh, we're in uh, food processing facilities. Our technology is that safe. Is it is it kind of a plug and play technology when you when you're looking at these different facilities? I mean, is it or do you, you don't have to tear down the building? And, and <laughs> no, you, you don't have to do that. Um, we got we got a couple of different types of devices. We got an induct induct device that you put into the HVAC system, and that takes a little bit of work. But we uh, we found that uh, before SARS-CoV-2, everybody wanted. Uh, to put it someplace where it was not visible. Uh, since uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, you know, our clients generally want to have it in the room where people can see it and feel safe because it's there. So, uh, the you know, we have our in-room devices now, a uh, sphere and, uh, you know, the sentry, and we're working on a new one. Uh, but those can be placed on a flat surface on a uh, on a stand, or they can be mounted on the wall. Uh, the sphere's about 18 inches in diameter, and uh, it's, uh, it's pretty, it only sticks out from the wall about you know five or six inches and it just mounts on a little bracket uh think of a miniature tv mounting bracket it just you know we can mount it directly to the wall <laughs> this is it's wild i mean this is almost like right out of a science fiction story <laughs> well, thank you. so so what's what's next uh you know how is this how are you planning on scaling this uh nationwide into the military Absolutely. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at the military and the broader uh, community as well. Um, we, so Nexus, we, you know, I, I founded this company to uh, commercialize the, the technology I developed. And uh, we have uh, 16 granted patents in the United States right now, another 16 pending. Uh, what that does is it makes us a sole source developer of dry hydrogen peroxide technology, which means that uh, federal agencies and uh, you know, literally any government agency at any level can contract with us on a uh, sole source basis. Uh, they don't have to go out for a competitive bid because we are the company that provides this. And uh, our goal is to help us uh, transition out of the pandemic and also deal with those things that were a problem before the pandemic and will remain a pro problem after the pandemic. Uh, infections in hospitals, mold in homes, that kind of thing. So, um, the, you know, we want to make sure that we get out into all of those facilities that are both on post and uh, in those in the community supporting the post, you know, theaters, restaurants, churches, et cetera, and help people return to normal life and feel safe and comfortable while doing so. That is some fascinating technology and wild stuff. <laughs> well, let's stick with the topic of future resilience. We're excited to announce that ADC is releasing a new report today. And that report's called Advancing Resilience for Defense Communities, a Planning Framework. ADC program has always featured stories of resilience, and while case studies and anecdotal evidence are helpful, we realize what has been missing is really that standardized framework. Here to join us today and talk about this new report is John Molleg, Manager of Resilience Programs at Stantec. Welcome, John. Welcome to ADC Live. Hey, John. Hey there, uh, first, how are you? <laughs> all right. Uh, first, I, I want to thank you uh, for Stantec's support. We really couldn't have done this uh, without you. Um, you know, it's incredible to think back to the beginnings of this idea. Uh, your colleague Jim Palman and I were standing in a hallway uh, up in Alaska at the very first Alaska Defense Forum. And we were talking about the need for some kind of a master document for communities. And it seems like every time I ran into Jim or talked with him after that, uh, the need just became more and more apparent. Can you start off by giving some background from that perspective and how he finally talked you into to jumping on something like this? Sure can. Yeah, uh, Matt 
we've been talking about this obviously for a long time. And, you know, we're talking about this need for this resiliency planning framework. Um, I recall being in 2020, beginning of 2020, at ADC installation uh, innovation forum that we were discussing the FY 2019 amendment for National Defense Authority Act and how that for the first time was really defining what resilience was for military installations. That same amendment then later on introduced this new opportunity for defense communities to basically um, secure assistance from OEA, then OEA now um, old CC, in doing resiliency planning at the community level. So we think you know that was really the catalyst for creating the need for this resiliency framework. Um, I also remember back from that panel discussion, some of the key points from, from that were you know, the importance of coordinating, the importance of coordinating both the installation at the installation well, level as well as the defense community level that we're better together. Another thing we heard way back then and is still pertinent today was how much this is, represents a unique opportunity, a uh, unique opportunity to protect and to address critical infrastructure needs, uh, those shared infrastructure lifelines between the installations and the defense communities themselves. John, as, as you know, it can be a daunting task to take all the necessary steps to become more resilient as a community. Um, how is this is report helpful in breaking information down and providing concrete, achievable targets? And help us understand how how would you see communities using this this document? Well, we really see the communities using this document as an expansion of their resilience toolkit. Um, we see this framework as being, you know, really supporting communities to better understand their vulnerabilities and risks. We see them being able to use this tool to screen and prioritize actions and solutions. And probably most importantly, we see them having the opportunity to identify partners. And we're not talking just partner between the defense community and the installation, but external partners like other federal agencies, for example, FEMA and their BRIC program, building resilient infrastructure in communities, or even the private sector where there's a win-win for the entire community. You know, I don't want to give any spoilers, but uh, what are your top three takeaways from this effort? Well, um, I think the first, there's a lot of different takeaways, but I think the first takeaway would be the importance of leveraging. You know, there's been a lot of good work that's been occurring at the community level as well as the installation level. And it's so important to bring that good work to the table. Um, so, at, for example, at the, at the defense community level, they've been doing all hazard planning to comply with the FEMA requirements for quite a while. And we're aware at the installation level, they've been doing resiliency reviews, reviews of their energy, water, and cyber systems. So it's, it's so important for us to leverage that information to get a running head start ad at addressing your resilience needs. I what, think a sec oh, 
No, no, go ahead, John. I mean, we're, we're just excited. The report is, is ready to release. It's been a long time in the making, and it's now, I'm told, available on our website. So we appreciate your help in making this happen and, and all the help at Stantec to make this possible. So, so, John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Let me know that this is a conversation that's going to continue. Uh, DOD just keeps placing more and more emphasis on it. So I think it'll be really helpful. Uh, one of the influ most influential leaders here in Washington that's been paying attention to the issue of resilience for installations and communities is Senator John Tester, chairman of the Senate Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. I had a chance to sit down with him just yesterday and talk about resilience, the budget, and how he's supporting the Defense Community Infrastructure Program. Let's take a look. Well, sir, thank you so much for uh, being with us here today. It is, it's a pleasure to be with you. I look forward to the conversation. So I think we can just jump in because I know you guys got a lot going on up there these days. Um, you know, as you know more than anybody, uh, we're still waiting for DOD's budget request. Uh, but from your perch as chair of defense, uh, Senator, uh, appropriations. I was hoping you might be able to provide us a sense of what you'd like to see in that request. Well, look, uh, I mean, the, the 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 brave men and women are the, the, really the foundation of our military. Uh, they they do incredible work in incredibly difficult uh, conditions a lot of the time. So, making sure they have the resources to that they need to be able to do their job and keep us all safe. Uh, is critically important. I think it's also critically important when we get that budget is to make sure that we're getting the biggest bang for the buck, uh, making sure that, um, you know, the dollars we're spending is, is actually, uh, making our country stronger from a defense standpoint. And, uh, in that vein, we'll be holding, uh, the DOD accountable and, uh, the military, uh, providers, military industrial complex, whatever you want to call it. Also, uh, accountable. Um, and then I will tell you, uh, we'll also look at the budget from a, a legacy weapons standpoint, uh, making sure that, uh, uh, you know, if, if the military doesn't need it, uh, we certainly shouldn't be buying it. And uh, that would that's a waste of money. Uh, and uh, so, uh, as I believe it's important that as appropriators, we listen to the military and listen to what they need so we can meet the needs of each branch of the military service. Uh, it's also important as appropriate as we hold them accountable to make sure that uh, what they use and what, uh, what, what do they say, uh, want what you need, but need what you want. And, and that's a fact. And so we need to make sure that uh, they're using these dollars to actually make our country uh, more secure uh, and meet the, meet the demands that are out there. And they are many. And then the other thing that I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up is the Garden Reserve. Uh, they're playing a bigger role than ever in our in our nation's uh, uh, security, and uh, and we need to make sure that we look out for those folks too. Well, as an Army reservist myself, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> but uh, but speaking of that, you know, the budget. There's been lots of talk that it could be flat, that it could even see a decrease from previous years. Uh, what do you expect there? Do you think there'll be there'll be pushback on the House side for uh, a really decreased budget? I don't know. Uh, I, I will tell you that I think uh, the budget amount is important, but I think what's even more important is making sure the money is spent correctly. So, as I said earlier, so we can get the biggest bang for the buck. And, and I think we do 
need to have defense uh, priorities. And I can tell you that um, the threats to this nation from from Russia, from China, from Iran, from uh, religious radicals are are real, and uh, and we need to make sure we're addressing those in 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 the best way. And and and, and so that's what's really important. I don't think we should be focusing on. Our last war, I think we should be trying to project what our adversaries are going to do to us in the next war. And so, um, the, the amount uh, the amount of the budget is is important. Uh, and if it is if if it is uh, if it isn't enough, and it depends on who you want to talk to on the answer to that question. But if it isn't enough, then then we'll have to fight to to plus it up. If there's fat in it, then we're going to have to do the opposite to make sure that. Uh, the taxpayer dollars are spent in the best possible way. So, uh, so what's that? What's that really mean, Matt? When we're talking about this stuff, um, I am in information gathering mode. Uh, for example, uh, earlier uh, this week, we we talked to the Guard and Reserves about what their needs are. We're doing that to everybody in the military. I'm trying to get out to bases and see what their challenges are. Uh, I'm trying to uh, get into the, the cyber area to find out what their challenges are. And so, hopefully, that we can uh, we can allocate the dollars and make decisions uh, for the best in the best interest of, the, of our defense partners. And I guess, kind of shifting to what DoD priorities and how they might shift. I think last week there was that shocking kind of cyber attack on one of our nation's most important gas pipelines. Uh, while it seems to highlight the need for infrastructure investment more broadly, are DoD installations vulnerable to this? Is that an area that really needs to be uh, looked at when DoD puts its budget request out? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I don't. I don't think we can assume that any place is safe from cyber attack. I think we need to be on the cutting edge to make sure that our cybersecurity uh, meets the demands are out there. And by the way, they're ever changing. And we have to have the best of the best, and we do, by the way, out there making sure that we're ahead of our uh, of the folks that want to do harm to us. Uh, uh, and so I, I would tell you this, as far as our DOD installations, they're, they're probably better protected than the private sector and critical infrastructure that we saw in the Colonial, and I'll get to, into that in a second. But, but the truth of the matter is, is that uh, we still need to make sure that uh, we have the weapon system out there. We have the cyber capabilities to be able to not only deal with uh, any sort of uh, security threat uh, this next year, but but years beyond. Uh, one thing on on the critical infrastructure piece, where we have a private company that has a critical piece of infrastructure like the Colonial Pipeline, I really think we're going to have to do some things, not necessarily within the DoD budget, but as Congress, to make sure that there is no doubt about it absolute unequivocal information sharing uh, when when we have those kind of attacks. Uh, I think that uh, there's no room for secrets here. Uh, we need to find out what has happened and we need to react and be proactive about stopping it from happening again. Uh, that may require the entire Congress. Uh, I guess sticking on this infrastructure theme, uh, DOD and the administration has signaled that climate change is a critical threat. Uh, to our installations and mission readiness. Uh, what are your thoughts on how they need to address this? How do they need to work with the community to shore up climate resilience? Well, first of all, the DOD is correct. Um, climate change is a is a serious threat. Um, 
I oppose the previous administration's decision to pull out of Paris uh, Climate Accord, and and I think it was important that we take a retake our global leadership role to fight climate change because it's real. We've seen it in disaster after disaster. We've seen it seen it in, in floods and rising sea levels and molds and all that stuff. Uh, climate change has has an impact on it. Um, look, uh, Secretary Austin is creating a DOD climate working group uh, uh, to coordinate the department's actions in regard to climate change. Um, and I think that's that's smart. I think they've uh, the military has to look and, and in some cases even try to predict uh, what the challenges are going to be out there in climate and, and try to do the kind of uh, prevention work, uh, mitigation work uh, to be able to protect the bases uh, when when uh, when climate events happen, um, and there's happening with more and more regularity, and uh, and in that regard, the the Melcon budget is going to be very very important too. Not only the defense budget that I work on, but but the the military construction budget that the the Senator Schatz is chairman of. So it's a uh, it, it's a it's a full time job. Uh, we're, we're seeing the climate change. We're seeing its impacts every day. We're seeing its impacts. Uh, on manpower, we're seeing its impacts on threats that are out there because of changing populations, uh, and 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 it's nothing to sell short. And uh, and I think if we all work together, uh, the DoD, the executive and legislative branches, I think we can all work together to make sure that our, our military uh, has uh, has what they need to be able to address climate change and be able to be fully functional and. Uh, moving forward. You know, it seems like one of the tools in the toolbox there is a program called the Defense Community Infrastructure Program, uh, which I know you were supportive of in the last two years. Uh, Maelstrom Air Force and Great Falls were able to benefit from this program. Do you think we'll actually see money for this for the first time in the budget request? And if not, uh, will Congress be willing to support it in the future? Yeah, it is a program that I support, and I, I don't want to get ahead of uh, the president's budget on DOD priorities. Uh, but but the fact is, community, communities that support military installations are absolutely critically important to our nation's resilience, and and we need to be smart uh, in creating tools to be able to empower those communities and the bases uh, that are right next to them or within them at the same time, uh, and particularly when it comes to infrastructure. Uh, but look, as the budget comes over to Congress, uh, we're going to rely on feedback from the Defense Department. Uh, if we don't agree with that feedback, we're going to be challenging them so that we can make the best decision we can. Can some of these decisions are going to be very difficult. Uh, you know, money is uh, is not. Uh, I mean, there are limits to it. Uh, but our job in Congress is to make sure that the folks back home uh, and those communities are well supported, and uh, and plus make sure our our military is well supported. I believe those go hand in hand. By the way. Um, as, as I uh, tour different military installations, um, you know, what comes up all the time is, you know, the military, uh, the community really uh, supports this installation and is, is very, very much on the ball to make sure that life uh, and quality of life is 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 good for these uh, men and women that serve in our military. So, look, uh, uh, I look forward to, to working with the administration, Defense Department, uh, to to make sure that we're, we're supporting uh, both uh, the military, uh, uh, the military infrastructure, and the communities that surround them. Well, one last question for you, sir. Uh, and I read this the other day. 
you know, earmarks have obviously made a comeback. Uh, but as I understand it, your sub subcommittee has stated that you won't be accepting requests uh, for the defense bill. Is that, is that correct? And, and yeah. do you think that'll conflict with the House? I don't think it's going to conflict. I mean, uh, hopefully the House will use good sense and follow what we do But uh, in the Senate. But, but the bottom line is this. Uh, uh, earmarks uh, uh, are, are something that I, I don't think we need in, in, in the military defense budget. I think that we all understand, uh, and I'm talking about both sides of the aisle, the folks that serve here understand how important defense is. I think we all understand that if we uh, screw up, uh, you know, uh, you, you can't, you get no mulligans in this, man. You got to do it. You got to do it right. Because quite frankly, uh, the, the impacts of bad decisions come back. And so I don't want to muddy that water with uh, individual earmarks, especially when we're talking about legacy systems, quite honestly. Uh, and so uh, we decided to, to shy away from them. Look, maybe next Congress, uh, we'll see how they work in the other subcommittees. But but I just really think uh, when it comes to defense, uh, we all need to be on the same page. We can argue about what the top number is. We can argue about whether uh, we need to spend it in one of the different branches to a greater level. Uh, but in the end, uh, I think that it's just fine without any marks. Matt, that was a fascinating interview with, with Senator Tester and a lot to unpack from that discussion. But one of the topics we, we mentioned with the senator was the Defense Community Infrastructure Program. And we are fortunate that actually the program details for this year were announced yesterday in the Federal Register. Um, and we haven't had that much time to digest everything, but we wanted to dig into it today. So we are happy to welcome Sal back to join us. As as you know, Sal is a member of the ADC board and CEO of Matrix and is expert in all things DSIP. And we've given him exactly five hours to digest everything about DSIP and the Federal Register notice. So he's ready to, to share. But seriously, Sal, thank you for joining us today on such short notice. And I'll, I'll preface what we're going to talk about is we're going to kind of stick to some big themes we we understand about this year's program. But as always, we recommend going to the OLDCC website, reading all the information yourself, digesting it. Um, but we want to give folks a good preview of, of what, what you're going to see in the, the DSIP program for this year. But thanks for joining us, Sal. Thanks for having me, Tim. Uh, good to see you. Sorry I'm not in the studio with you, Matt. I know we have uh, we have some history there, but we'll do it again. <laughs> hey, we, we needed you back one more time here. But let me, Sal, let me start with the, the idea of military value. This is going to become the centerpiece of this year's DSIP program. But it's also, as we know, and I'm having flashbacks to backgrounds, um, military value and trying to determine it can just be a hot mess. Talk to us about what you think, how this is going to play out with this year's DSIP program. Sure, Tim. Uh, let me also just start off by thanking uh, Mr. Patrick O'Brien and, and the whole uh, OLDCC staff. Uh, they gave the board uh, a nice preview of the program. We had a nice presentation earlier to talk a little bit about what the program entails and some of the details that I've had five hours to digest. Um, so uh, military value, I think, is a really uh, a, a critical element of what's going to be part of this year's DSIP. Uh, they made it very clear. It's military value, military installation resilience, and then quality of life, uh, frankly, in that order. Um, last year's program, albeit successful, had about 75% of the grants ultimately ended up supporting more quality initiatives, whether they were wellness, fitness, 
STEM type activities, all very, very important. But it, it might have gravitated away a little bit from the whole infrastructure uh, essence of DSIP. So this year, they've tied military value to it. And if you're unfamiliar with military value, go back and pull up a 2005 BRAC report. And in excruciating detail, it'll talk about what military value entails. There's a number of different elements to include an installation's abilities as it relates to operational readiness, um, infrastructure conditions, cost of operations, both uh, for manpower as well as uh, the facilities themselves. Uh, very importantly, access to training ranges, both uh, in the air, on the water, and on the land, encroachment, weather, you name it. All those are part of military value. So those values are out there, and it's kind of a way to, to kind of baseline where installations are uh, as they all come forward and apply for what's going to be a relatively small pool, $60 million, that, you know, if I were crystal balling it, I'd say we're going to get 10 times that amount, if not more, in terms of actual grant applications. We certainly did last year. Uh, and as you know, the term military value continues to evolve. Sometimes it seems like each service has their own definition. So we'll see how they all work that out. You know, one term that got thrown around uh, by communities and DOD is shovel ready. Uh, and it's something we hear a lot, but you only have to talk to a handful of city managers and county officials to realize there's no such thing. Uh, so talk to us about what they mean when they actually say shovel ready. Yeah, that's a great question, Matt, because I think that scared some people off in the past. Um, I, and again, I, uh, I'm going <laughs> to go back to Tim's statement of go back and read the FFO and everything else that's out there, because there's 13 pages of dense uh, guidance of how the program's to be administered. Uh, my understanding, though, is it's not truly shovel-ready. In my vernacular as a, as a career civil engineer, shovel-ready means I can go pull something off the shelf hand it to a, a general contractor and they can get going. Uh, from OLDCC's perspective, what they want is a project that's been vetted, it's got stakeholder um, in, uh, in approval of it, it's been through some level of design, and most importantly, they can prove that it's been all the necessary wickets in order to receive funding by the end of this fiscal year, which would be 30 uh, September 21, but more importantly, have the dollars actually appropriated within the next 12 months. So it's not as if you've got to be able to pull something off the shelf. You know, expectation is there's still going to have to be some NEPA work. There's expectation you might be taking a 60% a design to 100% design. All that, I think, will qualify as shovel-ready. But on the other end of the spectrum is if the good idea fairy hasn't even landed yet, it's probably not the kind of project that's going to see the light of day under what um, uh, OL uh, or old CC is going to be approving this year. Sal, one of the other interesting changes, and there's kind of two things connected in this, is first, the definition of rural has been changed to everything under 100,000, um, but they're also not requiring a match for rural communities. And that now has triggered another sort of change, and that means that the match overall is not going to be part of the scoring. Help us kind of unpack that, explain what's what's happening with that part of it. 
yeah, another nuance that's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. So uh, last year's threshold for the definition of rural was 50,000. So if you were in a community of 50,000 or less, the match requirement was either eliminated or minimized. I can't, I don't remember the exact rules. But in this year's program, it's been bumped to 100,000. But frankly, when you think about where a lot of our military installations are, uh, they actually find themselves in relatively sparsely populated areas uh, for, again, lots of good reasons when you talk about uh, training ranges and things of that nature. So there will be, I think, a lot of candidates out there that don't need to worry about the match component. So they're really going to need to focus on the military value and the resilience uh, aspects of what um, OLDCC is looking for. For those communities that are above 100,000 and will require a match, it's a minimum 30% match. Um, it, from our conversations or the presentation that we got to the board earlier, there doesn't appear to necessarily be uh, an extra kicker that's gonna that you're going to earn if you bring more than 30% to the game. But uh, just recognizing that the pool is only $60 million, and as I said, you're going to have scores of communities that are likely going to be coming after these really uh, well-needed dollars. I think the more um, skin in the game, the count, the communities can bring themselves, the more other people's money they can bring, whether it's state matching other entity funds. Uh, I, I imagine that would look good to this, uh, to the source selection committee. Um, they're going to have some difficult challenges because uh, the rule set allows for awards up to 20 million. Uh, again, there's only 60 million in there. So theoretically three projects could wipe out the entire amount. Now, I don't think that's what will happen on this. On the lower end, uh, there's a floor of $250,000 request. And I think that's just because it's not worth the administrative burden of trying to do grants. They're going to be much more than that. They're not intended to be micro grants. Well, there's a lot of in information out there to kind of digest today. And I want to bring up a couple key dates that um, are coming up here for the DSIP program this year. June 2nd, there's going to be an OLDCC webinar on the process for this year. So we strongly encourage you to register for that. And then the proposals are due July 12th. And then we expect August 13th is the date listed now where grants would be, um, well, would be announced. As you know, it takes a little while to get them awarded there. So Sal, thank you for joining us today. I think um, there's a lot all of us have to kind of digest on it, but hey, we're talking about $65 million getting invested in our defense communities. So that's a really good thing. And it, it's a great thing that ADC has been able to push forward. So thank you for all your help today and your continued leadership. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a great day. Thanks, Al. Well, we're also, you know, switching gears from DSIP to new news about ADC. We're excited to be announcing a new program to get today that we're doing with a, our partners at Navy Federal Credit Union. It's called Guiding Your Mission, and our goal is to create more awareness about the importance of financial and career planning within the military community. We had a chance to talk with Mark Martinez, a Naval Federal Credit Union regional manager on the ground out in Colorado to learn about why this program is vital, why the work financial and career counselors do deserves to be recognized. Let's take a look. The 
uh, Association of Defense Communities and Navy Federal Credit Union have teamed up to launch Guiding Your Mission, uh, which is a new program focused on promoting financial wellness and career development within military and veteran communities. Military service members and their families undergo a, a lot of challenges, um, whether it be the need to create a savings plan ahead of moving to a new duty station or a military spouse managing finances while their loved one is deployed. Uh, oftentimes our members have to leave family members behind for their next mission and they just want to make sure that everything is taken care of so their, their family members don't have to worry. And that's really why career and financial education counselors are so important. Uh, they help our military and veteran communities navigate through these challenges along their financial journeys and, and help them plan for their future. Guiding Your Mission will serve as a resource platform for career and financial counselors and defense communities, helping them to provide financial education as they guide our military service members on the right path to financial wellness. The Guidepost Awards will recognize these counselors and the important roles they play in, in helping military families reach their savings or career transition goals. My dad was in the Army for 22 years and uh, and as a young soldier, didn't always have those resources available to him a long time ago. And, and as he uh, moved up through the military and, and advanced in rank, it became very important to him too to, to help his soldiers um, understand the importance of financial health and, and wellness uh, because he didn't necessarily have that when he when he was a young soldier. And, and I think a lot of what we do is, is that now uh, is trying to really give those young soldiers uh, the opportunity to succeed financially and plan from, from the start of their careers. And please look for more information for us uh, coming soon, and we can, we're can we very excited to get that program going. Now, today is our last show for the season, uh, but ADC Live is not going away. We're going to be continuing to develop and share interviews, stories, and breaking news through this format. We're excited about the opportunities we have to better connect with you to what is happening around the country, and ADC Live will be a big part of how we do that. Look for more information soon on the future of ADC Live. We are also very excited to be returning to in-person events this July. And today's, we officially opened up registration for ADC Reconnect. And as expected, it's a pretty popular event. Actually, I haven't seen a, an event like this, as many people register as quickly for an event. So it, there definitely is a lot of interest in coming back in person. Keep in mind, right now, registration is only open to ADC members who are from the public sector. We will hopefully open up other categories very soon, but we, we're doing this in a very kind of systematic way. You can get all the details on registration at, at our website, which is defensecommunities.org slash reconnect. And I will add, you know, we are we are trying to get as many people at this event as we can safely fit. And we're the guidance is changing on a regular basis. But again, we're going to try to get as many of you in the room as we possibly can. But speaking of reconnect, I know you are already putting together another incredible program. It's coming together quickly. The services are excited to get back together. They're excited to see the communities. It's all about reconnecting and 
advancing the partnerships that for a long time now have been on pause. So we'll have all of the service leaders there for the installations. We've got interest from real senior folks over in DOD. It's gonna be a good program. Well, we're excited and it'll be great to see many of you back in person here in DC in just a few months. Well, it looks like we are out of time. So thank you for joining us today. And thank you for your continued support of ADC. We look forward to having you join us in the future for ADC Live program and ADC Reconnect in July. And don't forget, we're at Installation Innovation this November. From our studio here in Washington, DC, thanks for watching ADC Live.